0: Welcome, you're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Yes, good morning to everyone watching. Is the sound okay? All right. Um, So there are several parts to this talk today, and I just want to quickly run through them, and then we'll go into each one. Um, First, I want to, uh, since the topic... Is language is Maya. I want to lay some groundwork around the term Maya, and then discuss certain aspects of language. That is, its advantages and disadvantages. Um, then functions or operations using language, and fi- uh, and then and then uh, for our purposes, uh, a comparison of the language used by two schools of. Uh, Vedanta, that is the Sankhya and Advaita Vedanta. Then there's a rather long quote by Swami Nityaswar from an introduction to the Astavakra Samhita, which I I thought was just amazing, and so I want to share that with you. And then we'll talk a bit about mantra, and then finally a thrilling conclusion, and we can all go about our day. (laughs) So, to begin... Um, The philosopher's realm is language. Um, Through philosophy, you can get a boost in understanding, but understanding is still within the mind. Yet the Vedanta philosophy is constantly pointing the way beyond or outside of the confines of language. Ramakrishna told several of his disciples not to read too much, and some of them threw their books away. But he did not so instruct Swamiji. Nevertheless, Swami Vivekananda was familiar with this idea, obviously. He had studied the Sufi poets. One of these very famous, uh, the superlative poet, actually, Rumi, had very much in his lifetime valued his books. Shams Tabrizi, one of Rumi's teachers, therefore directed Rumi to, quote, set all of the words on fire. Today's talk Is all about words. So we'll talk, we'll start with the word Maya. I'm sure you've heard this before, but just to remind you, it's from the Sanskrit verb root ma, which means to measure, to limit, to give form. And the term Maya is slightly used slightly differently in the different schools. The only one we're concerned about today is Advaita Vedanta, which considers the term Maya as the indeterminate principle, which brings about the illusory manifestation of the universe, a power that is neither real nor unreal. It is the scheme by which the term, maya, is the scheme by which the Advaitin explains how the one reality appears as many. It is the power which brings about error, and it has a significance only at the empirical or relative level. Now, maya has several facets. It's beginningless. It's terminated by right knowledge. It veils, projects, and reveals. It's indefinable, indefinable, anirvacaniya. I love that word. And it's the, of the nature of positive existence. The Sanskrit term is bhava-rupa. Maya is associated either with the jiva or Brahman, and it is used interchangeably with the term avidya, which indicates unknowingness at the individual level. With the foremost philosopher Shankara, who posited this theory of maya, the fact of the experience of the world is not questioned. Rather, the emphasis is always on an inquiry into Brahman. The concept of maya, or bondage, is therefore an offshoot of an inquiry into Brahman, the absolute reality. Maya is the matrix of relativity, the appearance of Brahman in our minds. The mind itself is an organic measuring device hidden within a quantum mechanism. It's the perfect instrument for either being totally hoodwinked or for solving this mystery. It's up to us, which we we wanna do. Maya's operation is simply inexplicable or indefinable. It can't be said to be either real or unreal. I know I'm repeating myself, but that's important. Philosophy is unable to give any rational explanation of phenomena. Shankara's inquiry into Brahman revealed that Brahman does not belong to any category, yet our lives are full of categories. Indeed, the first philosophy of the world, Sankhya, means an explication of categories. I'm going to talk a little bit later, more about the differences between these schools of philosophy later. Now, the second term in the title today is language. And it's the key to unraveling the mystery behind Maya. Human beings are said to be born in language uh, with a built-in language acquisition device. Although human beings are not born speaking, according to Noam Chomsky, the world's foremost linguist, he believes that we were born with a very special ability specific to human beings, that is, the ability and the drive to learn a language. According to Chomsky, Humans are born with minds that contain inborn language ideas, which he called universal grammar. Universal grammar is not a grammar of any particular language, but it contains the essentials with which any particular language can be acquired. Each language is an entire worldview. Thinking and speaking create our individual worlds. Language is, therefore, the fundamental building block of our entire known reality. We have not only a built-in language acquisition device, but just this year, researchers have published new findings that humans are also born with a part of the brain that is pre-wired to be receptive to seeing words and letters. Analyzing the brain scans of newborns, researchers found that this part of the brain, which they have called the visual word form area, is connected to the language network of the brain. Quote, that makes it fertile ground to develop a sensitivity to visual words even before any exposure to language, said the senior author of the study at the University of Ohio. Quote, even at birth, the visual word form area is more connected functionally to the language network of the brain than it is to other areas. Now our ability to use language and to adapt it over time has resulted in both positive, that is cultural, and negative, that is spiritually detrimental effects. So the language advantages are tied to meaning and understanding. Okay, so what are these? I'm going to list a few of these. Communication across not only generations but centuries, millennia. No other animal can do that. Communication of complex, abstract concepts. The manipulation of symbols now symbols, okay, and then the advent of writing. Symbols came before writing, first, you know, picturally, or they would they would depict certain things which had within any given culture instantaneous transmission of meaning to the people in that culture. It then, with the advent of writing, became it, this became the basis of civilizations. By the way, I'm going to put in a plug here for CBS. They they did a series on language recently on on writing specifically which is I don't know four episodes or something it's absolutely fabulous if you can see that it's just great okay now language advantages were on it's not static the evolution of language um, happens as society becomes more complex each generation in the last couple of centuries anyway has produced its own slang, which is of short duration, but within that generation conveys things that effectively sometimes shut out other generations. Um, and then, f- not finally, but the last one on the list, one of the advantages of language is that we can then share aesthetic experiences. We have the ability to share beautiful poetry, song lyrics, etc. But when we need to go beyond understanding, beyond meaning and the mind, language becomes an obstacle to direct experience. So some of the disadvantages of language. First of all, it separates everything into little separate, little different boxes. Um, It contributes to the idea of a self that is separate from everything else. So, you know, I'm in a box, you're in a different box, and there's sort of a barrier in between. Just within the usage of language, there's the possibility of misunderstanding due to ambiguities in uh, grammatical structure or pronunciation or whatever. So sometimes we may think we're communicating with somebody and they actually maybe even get the opposite notion. If they just happen to not hear that you said not in the sentence, then they go and do what you just told them not to do, or whatever. Okay, so um, the evolution of usage over time may lead to some misunderstandings. So for instance, over time some words have actually come to mean exactly the opposite of what they originally meant. So you have to know, if you're reading a book or whatever, for instance, what era the book was written in, when did that, you know, what meaning did that word have at that time? Um, Fortunately, there aren't that many of them that have become actually opposite, but some of them have changed in more nuanced kind of ways. Okay, another disadvantage. Um, Language determines or limits, actually limits our perception. If we don't have a word for what we see, we don't actually see it. Uh, That has been tested, Um, and historically that's true, and I know I've used this example before, but for instance, when a bunch of blips appeared on the horizon of the ocean in the West Indies about 500 years ago, The people standing on the shore had no idea what those things were. They had no word for it, no nothing. Well, it just happened to be a little fleet with uh, Columbus and his crew. And um, I'm sure they very quickly learned a word for ship, but uh, it didn't help them in that current moment. Okay, so (sighs) the biggest difficulty with language. I have it in bold right here. It substitutes words for experiences experiences are the fundamental part of life and sometimes we think we know what we're talking about because we have a word for it but we haven't actually absorbed it or experienced it ourselves more explicitly language substitutes symbols for reality In other words, we forget that the words are just symbols and we take them as real. Language is therefore the barrier to reality. Even the mathematician Hoffman, who's working on a model of consciousness, admits that reality is not what we think it is. Now I'm just gonna take one very simple example, but for instance, we have a word, compassion. Now, think about that word for a minute. It's not something that happens between two entities, but it engulfs both in one larger shared experience of non-difference. I mean, if you're not actually feeling as the other person is feeling, then what do you mean by compassion? It's just a, a it's a blank word. It's an empty word. So, okay, language is not static. It's really merely a measurement tool. This is where it comes in. I mean, it is like measurement, Maya, it's a tool. Would Maya exist without language? Let's take a closer look. Language has many, of which I have quite a few here, but I'm sure this is not exhaustive, Uh, measurement functions or operations. You will identify with all of them. You can add, arrange, calculate, compare, contrast, divide, duplicate, enlarge, equate, generalize, hide, magnify, merge, multiply, shrink, Sort, search, summarize, universalize, yield something. You can exempt something. You can identify color variations. You can subtract. These are all things that we do with language. They're, they're, they're mental abilities, but we do them through the implementation of language. Other features of language like adverbs and adjectives give a further refinement to the measurement. So, how much bigger? Um, How much slower? How much faster? All of these are add-ons to the original measurement. All of these things, without our being aware of it even, our inner instrumentality, which in Sanskrit is called antakarana, is doing. Not only do we, do we then do we perform operations on measurements, but then we also make a decision based on the results of those operations. So those decisions may be mundane, day-to-day kinds of things, or they may be the basis of major changes in our, in our lives. So language is important because it, it, not only day to day but for the long haul m- makes leads us, shall I say, in certain directions. Which, again, sometimes we just we don't question, we don't look at you know how did I arrive at this? Or later on, it's just kind of okay. I've made a decision. I'm going to follow that. Now, if we are measuring then we are automatically thinking and behaving objectively. Objectivity means that we take for granted that there's something out there. Something, not me, but it's out there. Or not I, maybe I should say. better. Um, furthermore, we associate with the measurements, functions, and decisions, and we tell ourselves stories about them and thereby create that I. Uh, language therefore reinforces the subject-object split, which is at the core of the ego. The ego epitomizes the primary duality from which we need liberation. So you see, it's all tangled up. We need to amend that, uh, to mend. Excuse me, that split and become one that is subject only. The mechanism that helps this fundamental, that helps keep this fundamental duality in place is called self-reflection. That puts the limited self at the center of mental processes that prevent our true nature from being known to us. Thought, in our case, as opposed to other animals, is almost entirely dominated by language. You're probably familiar with the song from the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna where Kamala Kanta says, My life is passing by, confused by thought. Let's look at the word confusion. It comes from two roots. The verb that is diffuse or meld, and con which means with or together. So diffuse together. So we're confused because these things that that maybe ought to be separate, are now fused, and that creates difficulties for us. So spiritually speaking, where there is thought, there is confusion. That It, you just, you, it just goes together. The 20th century sage, Raman Maharshi, often quoted from the Ribhu Gita, here's one small quote, that in which there is nothing of sankalpa, in which misapprehension does not exist, in which likewise there is no thinking, ever abide as that itself, Unquote. Now Ramana's commentary on all of this is that the self can never be a thought and thought can never know the self. Abidance in the silence of the self is being as you really are. Okay so all that you might say is a little bit of a preliminary because what I would like to do now is to go into a little more depth and uh, examine the use of language in relation to Maya according to the two schools of Sankhya and Vedanta. Uh, Sankhya, which again means classification, is ontological. That is It follows the path of origination of material substance or experienceables back and back to its origin. It just keeps investigating further and further back, and they postulate that origin and give it the name Prakriti. Parallel in this system to Prakriti is Purusha, which they describe as outside of Prakriti, but equally real, existence alone. The relationship between these two was always problematic, and so this system eventually declined as a philosophical system, but its roots are so firmly embedded in Hinduism that elements of it permeate everything. On the other hand, the Advaita Vedanta system is not ontological, it's apparitional. It attempts to eliminate everything that is experienceable so that you can arrive at that which is beyond all experiencing, beyond being and becoming, as Swamiji said. When everything has been eliminated, all that is left is existence, consciousness, and delight itself, which is designated as Brahman. Vedanta introduced the idea of the jiva, the embodied being, as being composed of or enclosed in five increasingly subtle sheaths, thus reusing and reorganizing the Sankyan system of categorization. The philosophical advance of Vedanta over the previous systems was to go from substance to appearance. Both points of view are thoroughly abstract. Now, when you go, when you read the books in our tradition, you can determine where the author is coming from by examining the language that is being used. So I'm going to go through, we're going to have two sides here. We're going to put Sankhya on this side, and we're going to put Vedanta, uh, that is Advaita Vedanta, on this side. Now, Sankhya is an ontological system, as I mentioned before. That means it's based on substance, Um, and it's a metaphysical, we call metaphysical. You say meta because it's not actually physical, it's like pre-physical, it's really on the conceptual level. And then on the other side with uh, Advaita Vedanta, we have Advaita which actually means non-duality, or occasionally, particularly in the older uh, writings, you'll hear it referred to as monism. And this is based not on substance at all, but on appearance. Okay, so, again, a little bit more uh, detail here. When you're talking about metaphysics or uh, sankhya, you'll hear words like, we're giving uh, the point of view, the, the, the writer is talking from a particular point of view. They'll use words like substratum, or, classif- or phenomena, and when you're talking about Advaita, they're going to wor- use words like um, noumena, appearance, and understanding. How, how did the world get to be under these two, circum- two systems? Okay, according to Sankhya, the natural world got here by actualization. They use the word transformation. Parinama is the Sanskrit word that's used. Things, real things transformed from one thing to another in a sort of an evolutionary kind of a way. In Advaita, how did the world get here? By mistake. <laughs> We're making a mistake. We're misreading We're misunderstanding. Okay, now, with Sankhya, they're going to use nouns like origin, source, essence, substance, stuff, cause, mass, or principle. Principle's a big word. On the uh, monistic side, they're going to use words like appearance, mistake, mirage, illusion, seeming, fantasy, dream, and non-origination. Sankhya is going to use verbs like manifests, materializes, emerges, evolves, transforms, derives, causes, Issues out of. Vedanta is going to use verbs like appears, seems, projects, conceives, understands, envisions, imagines, even flashes. Sankhya is going to use adjectives like tangible, sensible. Perceptible. This is where we get the words gross, subtle, and causal. And where we get the guna words sattva, rajas, tamas. Advaita is going to use words like imperceptible, uncaused, inconceivable, unoriginated, absolute. So, in a nutshell, what each system does, Sankhya classifies the external and internal perceptive universe, the perceptible universe. This is important. Not only the external universe, but our internal universes, okay? And traces it to a singular source. What Advaita does is destroys our programmed idea that any classification system can in any way refer to anything real why do these systems exist sankhya the purpose is to separate the self from the non-self so purusha is considered this is the word they use for self to separate that from the non-self which is everything that is of property or nature Advaita purpose is to discover our real identity, the experienceless, non-separate self. So there's no separate there even from the, the get-go. Okay? Now what the, both of these use a term like ignorance, okay? Asankhya uses the word avidya, which can be translated as wrong knowledge, confusion of the non-eternal as the eternal, and vice versa. On the Advaitic side, avidya means ignorance of what is behind the appearance. Ignorance is the concealment and distortion portion of what we've called, of maya. I I talked about several different properties of maya. So avidya is the concealment and distortion portion of that. How do these two systems conceive the ultimate reality? Purusha is an inactive real. It doesn't actually do anything in this system the the essence of that Purusha is being consciousness. On the ultimate the ultimate reality on the Advaitic side is Satchit Ananda, Brahman. You'll see that Ananda, delight or love, has also been has been added to the idea of what is that uh, fundamental reality. So the goal of liberation, liberation meaning, okay, we've, we've talked about the type of ignorance. Liberation means getting rid of whatever type of ignorance your system talks about. So on the Sankhya side, the goal of liberation is to disunify Purusha from the limitations of nature. And this is considered sort of an aloneness or an isolation. The word used is Kaivalya. And then the goal of liberation on the Advaitic side is an, is an integral selfhood. The word is moksha for liberation. And that integral selfhood is Brahman itself. The jiva, the embodied being is Brahman. We have maha, Mahavakyas, the, the great sayings from the Upanishads that, that point that out. There is no difference between the Jiva and Brahman. Now, they each have their problems, each of these systems, and I'm not going to list all of them. But the possible pitfall for um, Sankhya, and which is always allied with the Yoga system in Hinduism, is becoming trapped in this multiplicity. This classification system seeks to classify, you know, the entire universe. Um, So become trapped in that, and then the development of certain, um, like, psychic powers. So the the person practicing this could very well uh, get trapped in that cul-de-sac on that side. On the Advaitic side, the possible pitfall is overemphasis on the transcendent aspect um, which lead, which, can, which can lead particularly among um, those who are um, um, monastics or recluses or whatever to ignoring the problem the, the problems of living that people the people actually have so there neither of these systems are totally 100% perfect but I hope that you can see that they're really quite different, and when, when we read about them uh, a lot of times and in a lot of the lectures and whatever, they become, these two systems kind of become meshed. These words become sort of meshed together, and we think we're understanding them, um, and there is a certain amount of understanding, particularly when we're fresh and new and coming into it, but then, after a while, if we start asking ourselves where you know where does this all come from, that, that you can begin to see that they kind of there is a confusion and there is a certain um, n- non-understanding that's being produced because some things are actually sort of contradictory. So anyway, I hope that that for some people, particularly those who are um, interested in Advaita per se. Um, Can benefit somewhat by this this type of analysis of language. Now, the following quote that I have is is quite long, but it's so well expressed that I wanted to share it with you. Um, This is from the introduction to the Astravakra Samhita, which was um, edited or translated by Swami Nityaswarupananda many years ago, I think it was like in the 1920s. <clears throat> the superiority of the Vedanta lies in the fact that while it fully utilizes the resources of reason, it at the same time corrects and supplements the results obtained by that, that is reason, by means of a supra-intellectual intellectual organon. Now organon is the Greek word for what the Indians call antakarna, the inner instrumentality, um, which does not contradict the findings of reason but supplements them by its positive discoveries. The discoveries of this supra rational intuition satisfy the demands of reason in full. The tremendous hold of Vedanta upon the intellectuals of India is due to this secret of the reconciliation. Of reason with suprarational intuition. Undisciplined reason has its idiosyncrasies which lead to clash and conflict and so it stands in need of being checked by a corrective and this is supplied by the suprarational power of intuition in man. The aim of the Astavakra Samhita is realization of the truth and not a rational defense of it. The Samhita mainly demonstrates that freedom consists in seeing nothing but the self as and in everything. The disciple realizes that it is his own self that sustains and illumines the universe. The whole universe belongs to him, or rather, the whole universe hangs as a floating appendage to his being. The unity of the self with all that exists is realized. In fact, nothing exists but the self and the lingering trail of objectivity vanished on the disappearance of ignorance. The multiplicity of selves too is an equally unmitigated appearance. There is neither a plurality of objects nor a plurality of subjects. There is only one subject or rather no subject. The self-existent infinite consciousness plays the role of a number of subjects through its false identification with the mind organs, which are creations of this resourceful maya. Maya is the prius, that is, the precondition of the phenomenal world. The principle of unreason, the fountainhead of irrationality, the enchantress of infinite resources. There is no escape from her hypnotic influence save through knowledge, but there is a silver lining to every cloud. Maya is not the Satan of Semitic conception. She is not absolute evil and is possessed of a redeeming feature in her character. For she is also the embodiment of science and reason This provides an outlet. Science kills nescience, reason kills unreason, and both being embedded in the self same principle, called variously Maya, Prakriti, or Not Self, this principle carries in its own self the secret of her own death. The Maya principle carries the secret of her own death. That is the revealing power of Maya. So one tool in our spiritual toolkit that is used by both bhaktas, or devotees, and jnanis, or seekers of truth, is the mantra. Mantra takes the use of language and turns it into a tool for Maya's ultimate destruction. It confounds the swirl of unrestrained thought. Mantra is therefore a liberating technology. Sri Ramakrishna said, use one thorn to remove another. What is that thorn? It's the mantra. Mantra is the first step in freeing ourselves from the bondage of language. Admittedly, it works slowly and imperceptibly most of the time. That's because it's working at an unconscious level where our most pernicious obscurations abide. But we can't give up on the practice just because we don't seem to see anything happening. It is a strengthening of our will and resolve to know the truth every time that we practice. Ultimately by pursuing unity with the transcendental Ishtam through the mantra, we free ourselves from the restrictions of language. Fortunately, the mystery of selfhood can be penetrated. Our unknowingness can become knowingness. Because maya is not an existent. It's not a thing. You can't grab it and say this is maya. It is merely a term for explaining paradoxical contradictions to ourselves. Language and thought are the basis of avidya or unknowingness. Without thought, there can be no self-deception. Get rid of thought and things simply are as they are. Directly getting rid of thought altogether is the aim of the path of jnana or knowledge employed by the seers, the method is to simply ignore every specific thing that comes to mind and remain in open awareness of allness. The term normally employed for this plenitude is Brahman, that which puts an end to differences beyond conceptualization. In the Upanishads, Brahman is conceived of in two modes the reality of which the universe is just an appearance, and the word that they use for that is nishprapancha, and the all-inclusive ground of the universe, which is called saprapancha. Now for the thrilling conclusion. As Sri Ramakrishna, I mean, excuse me, Sri Nisargadatta, a 20th century know of Brahman, says, Liberation, moksha, is never of the person, but from the person that we mistakenly think we are. The idea of moksha is to deliver us from ignorance of our true nature, not from life itself. Ramakrishna used to say, peel off the five sheaths, layer by layer, like an onion. This is his pithy way of explaining the process of deconstruction. He used to tell some of his disciples, do not reason anymore. Would he have directed thusly if it were an impossible task? We can negate or rather deconstruct by name, by natural element, by sheath, by time, by objectivity, objectively, subjectively, by value judgments, by human characteristics. I mean, pick whatever you want. Start deconstructing. But I'm not talking about mere verbal denial. That would that would be ridiculous. And it's kind of a I mean, at a certain point in the beginning, you you need to know that from an intellectual point of view, but then, you know, once you know that, I'm talking about actually erasing the verbal superimposition and seeing what remains. At such times the mind stops, even if temporarily. There is nothing to entertain it, so it quits. It quits, leaving what? As Swami Vivekananda said, each one of you is only a conduit for the infinite ocean of knowledge and power that lies beyond mankind. Unquote. When we learn to see accurately, what will we see? Let's find out. There is a question. It appears that at least in this present age it is not a readily available mode of the mind to think without the use of a language. How should one go about going beyond name and form? you have to deconstruct now i'm talking about primarily when you're sitting for for meditation that things arise in the mind you don't suppress them you don't uh... create you don't empower them by suppression with uh, an energy to come back and, and come back at you later but what you do is you simply deconstruct it it's not real it's not Permanent. Permanent is the definition of reality in philosophy. Anything that changes is not real. So, uh, uh, name and form change um, constantly, and uh, we simply have to continuously remind ourselves. And then slowly what happens is, Name and form become a little more, to use a word off the top of my head, kind of ghostly. They they just kind of start to lose the same reality to us. They become just sort of like Casper the Friendly Ghost, you know. I mean, he's kind of there, but um, cannot influence our. Uh, or, or destabilize us from our practice and our uh, seeking the, the spiritual goal. Um, I mean, that's all I want, can say right now. I think there's plenty in, in the talk, if you go back and listen to it, that you can dig out um, a response to that question. Is there anything more? There were two answers given by other viewers to the question. Okay. <laughs> oh, uh One is, meditate, and the other is, don't try to fight it. It just is an augmentation of the human hardware. Language is just software. Correct. That is absolutely correct. That's the software. And there are different, you know, the same as with computers, there's different levels of of, uh, computer language. You know, there's the, there's the machine language and then there's a sort of an intermediate level and then there's the language that the programmers use for, for the ultimate programmers and stuff. It's the same thing with language. It, it, it just has different levels and you, you, you peel them off. So I'd like to give an assignment. How often is your mind without words? Strictly perceptual or aware? You have to pay attention to find out. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.